The Sober Highway Podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Brainwashed Coffee Company. We all know how important coffee is to the recovery community, but what's even more important is that Brainwashed Coffee Company donates 50% of its proceeds to people in addiction recovery. Visit brainwashedcoffeeco.com and use the promo code SOBERHIGHWAY at checkout for 20% off your coffee order. What better way to support people in addiction recovery than with a great bag or bundle of Brainwashed Coffee? Brainwashed Coffee Company. Simple coffee for complicated people. We are also brought to you by our sponsor, Fukit Clothing. Fukit is an inspirational brand with the mission to inspire and motivate people to live life without regret and accept challenges that are worth the risk. Visit the link in the episode description and use the promo code SOBERHIGHWAY at checkout for a discount on your order. I'm actually wearing one of their hats right now as I'm editing this episode. Again, check out Fukit Clothing at the link in the episode description and help support an amazing brand bringing awareness to mental health issues and suicide. Soft kitty, warm kitty, little ball of fur. Happy kitty, sleepy kitty, purr, purr, purr. Sorry guys, I was just watching an episode of Big Bang Theory before I started uh, editing this episode. So I figured I'd sing a little tune for you guys. But, what's going on? Welcome back. Today is Tuesday, May 11th, 2021. And it's time for episode 21 of your favorite recovery talk show, The Sober Highway Podcast. And boy, do we have an amazing discussion for you guys today. In this episode, Anika and I talk about defense mechanisms. These are things that we found our patients to use over the course of our therapy sessions with them. Some of them we've even used ourselves. And we really encourage you guys to let us know. Reach out to us if you've used these too. Get ready for an amazing discussion, guys. Get ready, get set, and let's go. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. My name is Dan. And my name is Anika. And welcome to the Sober Highway Podcast. We are two young social workers who have dedicated our lives and careers to affecting change in the addiction recovery community. We want to use this podcast as a platform to take the things we have learned over the course of our careers and share it with our listeners. At the end of the day, we hope to inspire as many people as we can to make a change and live a lifestyle free of drugs and alcohol. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. I rem- I did a little bit of reading before the stream about like the difference between cognitive distortions and defense mechanisms. And what I was gathering was that um, defense mechanisms were a first theorized by our good friend, Sigmund Freud. Yes. Um, and some of them are actually accurate, which is interesting because I, I know a lot of people mm-hmm. have very strong feelings about Freud um, mm-hmm. and how a lot of his work is like very inaccurate and, and lots of controversial things that he has said and done in history right and um but i do think in terms of defense mechanisms there is something to be said about his work and Mm -hmm. the accuracy at least in that part again i'm not saying his behaviors were right or all his theories are right um because again that's a whole can of worms right there but so you want to hear you want to hear a sigmund freud joke sure okay so why do they call it why do they call it a freudian slip i don't know 
It's when your mouth. It's when your mind thinks one thing and your mouth says a mother. <laughs> Get it? <laughs> oh man, yeah. Well, unfortunately, none of our, our all of our zero listeners didn't really get that. But if you do a little bit of reading into Sigmund Freud, you'll 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 get it. There was actually a really good meme that I saw on Sigmund Freud. I think it was actually today. It might have been yesterday. Oh yeah. Um, and it was basically like alluding to the fact that like Freud was doing a lot of cocaine, and so then it was like everything was penis envy, right? And mm-hmm. like you know. Everything was, it's, it's because you don't have a penis and you're jealous because you're a woman and you don't have a penis. And <laughs> it was just so funny. And then somebody was like, well, cocaine's a hell of a drug, right? So mm-hmm. like, it'll make you think anything. You know, I was actually at a street fair. This was a couple of years ago. Have you ever been to the Union Square Market in mm-hmm. Manhattan? Like right around Christmas time, there was this one uh, stand that had, they had like a bunch of different like knickknacks and it was all like like witty, funny, different things like coffee mugs and, and and stickers and magnets and you know calendars and stuff like that. And one of the things that I saw, and I really wanted to get these, but I just couldn't justify spending fifty dollars for them. They were giant. They they were they they were called Freudian slippers, <laughs> and it was basically just slippers with huge freaking Sigmund Freud heads on them, and. What is going on? You hear that? Yeah, I was going to say I, that's a change from the normal sax playing. Yeah, I know, right? No, but this is com- that's coming from the street. Um, but we could just give it a minute if we want. Um, but like, if I wore them in front of the right people, they would understand. But for the most part, like nobody would get it. And they'd be like, why do you have giant old man heads on your feet? And I'd have to explain to them, they're Freudian slippers. Do you get it? And they're like, no, I don't get it. Yeah. So like, that just defeats the purpose of, of, um, of getting them. But <clears throat> so for those of you guys that are listening or that will be listening to the podcast after we record, Um, we're going to be going over some defense mechanisms and basically what, what defense mechanisms are, they, these are things that we do that, that people tend to do that are not necessarily under their own conscious control. It's something that we do subconsciously to cope with life stress. Yeah. Would you say? Yeah, it's like the, the psychological like reaction or response, right, that happens, mm-hmm. um, which most of the time is like automatic, right, mm-hmm. or seems like we have no control over. Right. Um, which in therapy, you know, we try to understand, okay, let me identify the, the defense mechanisms I'm using, mm-hmm. see if they're kind of healthy, right, and then kind of unpack like, what does that mean? Do mm-hmm. I need to maybe change some of those? adjust them in some way? Are they healthy for me? Things like Mm -hmm. that. So one of the most common defense mechanisms that, that I see my patients use, um, that I've seen my friends and family use, even a defense mechanism that I've used in the past is denial. That's probably the most popular. Yeah. Um, so basically 
when you're in when you're in denial or when you're using that denial defense mechanism, you're essentially refusing to accept reality or facts, even even in the presence of information that contradicts what you're thinking. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know what it makes me think of? It makes me think of when there's an intervention for somebody that's abusing drugs or alcohol or mm-hmm. something else, right? There's like an intervention and they're putting together like all this information, like the, your support people, and the people that care about you. And they're putting together like a list of all these things that show you obviously have a problem with the substance, right? Mm-hmm. So whether it be like legal issues, um, work-related, school-related issues, and like they present all this information and the person who is struggling with addiction is like, that's not true. Oh, I can explain that. That's not how that works. It's not because of my drug or alcohol use. It's it's this person's fault or this the system failed me in this way or I was mm-hmm. whatever. Like that's one of the classic symptoms of, of a defense mechanism of using denial, right? That we mm-hmm. see all the time, especially in addiction. Right. I mean, when 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 i'm working with a patient and they seem to have an answer for everything or when you're when you're trying to confront someone on something that they're doing wrong and they literally have an answer for every single way you kind of change the the discussion or every piece of evidence that you you present them with they're usually like something's not right mm-hmm. you know they're like when when I'm trying to confront someone on something or I'm trying to, you know, kind of help my patient or my client work through something and I'm presenting them with all of these things, like I like my my goal is to poke holes in their logic. Mm-hmm. And hopefully after I poke, you know, s- you know, seven or eight holes in their logic then maybe they'll be like, oh, well, maybe I am in denial. Yeah. Um, the next one uh, is what we call repression, right? So instead of, instead of facing, you know, unsavory thoughts, uh, painful memories, um, instead of facing them, you just choose to hide them in, you, you just push them in the back of your mind with the hopes of eventually just forgetting about them. Yeah. So, so sometimes this could be conscious or subconscious, right? Like mm-hmm. this one's a little like, like tricky in that sense because they're per- people who are purposely trying to repress their memories. Right. And so they use like drugs and alcohol to purposely like suppress those memories. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then there's also a lot of people who uh, especially who have experienced trauma really mm-hmm. do not consciously remember the trauma and subconsciously little like triggers are kind of happening throughout their life. Um, that's alluding to maybe something happening or bring up this strong feeling, but they're not even entirely sure how it's connected to their trauma. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, all of a sudden, like you walk by something and like, there's a smell and like your heart starts racing, your palms start sweating. And it's like, mm-hmm what's going on. Right. And so typically that's like a trigger that we see with people who have repressed memories of, of some sort of trauma. And that could eventually lead to flooding. Right. So like Mm -hmm. if you, if, if you're in a session with the patient and all of a sudden they just let everything out and it's, you know, that's in some ways flooding is, 
in some ways flooding is good because they get everything out. But, you know, sometimes when, when a patient starts flooding, they, they get very, very overwhelmed Mm -hmm. and it gets to the point where they're on the verge of having, you know, a full blown panic attack an anxiety attack, you know, and that's not really, you know, at that point, it's kind of like crisis intervention, you know, having a, having a, um, having a constructive therapy session may have gone out the window at that point. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that sometimes it's very hard um, because again, depending on what setting you're working in and how you're working with someone, like if they're experiencing flooding from over repressed memory, it could be totally appropriate to spend Mm -hmm. the time right. And work with the person to, to kind of help them through. And other times in some settings, it's really not appropriate. Um, and so trying to contain that is a skill that therapists really need to, and clinicians in general, mental health clinicians or substance use clinicians really need to know how to do. Um, so if you're a clinician and you're listening and you need help with that, please speak to your supervisor or get your own therapy to really help you process that and learn that skill mm-hmm. because it's really hard to do. Uh, but it's really important because, again, we want to make sure our clients are kind of getting the best care. And if you're a client, remember that, like, if some of these memories come up, you have a couple options, right? So there's always you can explore it if you're in the right time, place and setting, right? But there's mm-hmm. also can I control some of the symptoms until I'm in a safe space to explore those memories, right? So if mm-hmm. repressed memories are coming through, um, you know, learning some grounding skills, breathing skills, things like that can be really helpful to at least deal with the initial anxiety and panic that might be coming up um, until you can get to a safer place to explore that in more detail. I think one of, I agree a hundred percent with what you're saying. And I think one of the reasons, one of the reasons why I personally have not ran a, you know, a trauma focused group is because I don't know. First of all, I know that when you run a trauma focused group, you're not really, you're encouraging the patients to share about how they're dealing with their trauma and not necessarily to talk about the trauma in particular. And the reason why patients, we ask patients not to do that is to prevent flooding. Um, so one of the reasons why I haven't, the main reason why I haven't ran one of those groups is because I don't know if I would be able to help a patient who's flooding. Yeah. Like how would I, how would I, how would I stop it? How would, how would I, how would I, you know, stop the bleeding in front of all of our patients in front of all the other people in the group? So typically I try to say I've ran a lot of trauma groups. um, and, And typically what I will say to the person is, you know, like I, I know something's coming up for you right now. Do you need to step out right now and speak to me? Can this wait till after group, right? Like, and so like, I kind of like, will pull them aside, ask them if they can kind of wait. And if they can, I'll meet with them after a group um, to kind of like, let them know that everything, you know, that they're experiencing, they have a space to talk about, but it's not necessarily in the group. Um, And typically, as long as you're doing that in a really like empathic, compassionate, supportive way, people are totally fine. Um, Mm -hmm. And and that's been my experience. Um, I will say there have definitely been some groups that are really structured in terms of curriculum to Mm. not stop, but um, kind of think about like 
creating such a structured environment that like it really is based on like you know dealing with just some of the general emotions and feelings and symptoms that come up without going into the exact trauma which is why like seeking safety is one that i i hear a lot of um <coughs> recovery centers use as a curriculum um, one of the ones that I particularly like for working with women, she does have a curriculum for men too, is Stephanie Covington's curriculums. She has multiple um, evidence-based, like 12-week, six-week, 16-week programs. Um, mm-hmm. She does emphasize treatment on women, which is a specifically like very hard to find in addiction recovery. Um, so I really appreciate that. I've been to the Covington conference and it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, But she has for men as well. She has a curriculum. It's really structured, really laid out. Um, And I honestly think that that was one of the best ones that I've used for trauma focused Mm -hmm. um, group therapy. So I haven't, I haven't heard of that one. I have heard of seeking safety though. Um, I never, I never had the, I never had the opportunity to run one of those groups. And quite frankly, I don't think I would want to run one until I've, taken the training and and kind of understand the curriculum yeah and and trauma work is not easy but no it is not (laughs) no it is not um i feel like i feel like i can i feel like i've helped patients through a lot of different traumatic experiences but i think the one i think the one group the one time I haven't dealt with many patients related to that have yeah let me start over I don't (laughs) I don't think I have dealt with that many patients that have experienced sexual trauma only because I don't have that many female patients and I feel like in my in my experience just I could just be it could be just a coincidence in in my experience but most of the patients that I've come across that have sex that have experienced sexual trauma are women. And I unfortunately haven't been working with many female patients. Yeah. I mean, there is a lot of sexual abuse that does happen to men and boys. Um, However, because of cultural stereotypes, um, stigmas, things like that, it is not talked about. I believe, and the statistic might still, it might be old, it might not be completely um, accurate, but three in five women have been sexually abused at some point, and one in five Hmm. men. Interesting. Right? So if we think about it in terms of, that's a lot of people that have had some sort of sexual trauma. Hmm. That is very, very interesting. Um, Maybe we should do, we should do a, 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 uh, episode on trauma, like coping with trauma and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah um, we, we definitely can. We kind of got a little off topic delving yes. into trauma. That's fine. But, but, you know, I think that, again, repression is one of those things that is, it's so tied to trauma in terms of defense mechanisms that it's something that, um, you know, again, if you're a clinician, you're definitely going to see. And if you're somebody that, you know, was experiencing mental health issues um, substance abuse issues or anyone, right? Like there could potentially be repressed memories that you have. That doesn't always mean that that's accurate either. Right. So it's not like a coping skill, a, a defense mechanism that everybody's using. Right. Right. So this brings us to our, the next 
defense mechanism we have here on our list, which is projection. Um, projection um, is basically, for example, if you have thoughts or feelings, say, about another person or, um, you know, thoughts or feelings towards a person, place, or thing that make you uncomfortable when you're projecting, you're essentially misattributing those thoughts or feelings to that person, that place, or that thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example, say there's a, a new coworker at your job that you don't like. Instead of accepting the fact that you don't like this person, you choose to tell yourself or even tell others that that person dislikes you. Mm-hmm. And you see you see their actions and the things that they do that you wish you could say to them. So does that make sense? Yeah. The other one that I see a lot too is uh, partners who are unfaithful to each other. (laughs) How do you figure? Um, So they are projecting their own like um, cheating or being unfaithful in some way onto their partner. Right. So like partner a is, you know, maybe having an affair or emotionally cheating, flirting, whatever it is, and a continuously like accuses partner B of doing those things. Oh, okay. Right? I, I've seen that a lot. I just didn't, I, I couldn't figure out what you meant. Okay. Yeah. And and so again, partner B is like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm not doing anything, right? <laughs> but, but partner A, again, it's, it's a subconscious defense mechanism of I'm going to project this. You know, what's interesting that you, you mentioned that's a, that dynamic, because I remember a lo- a while ago, I was listening to, uh, I was listening to another podcast. Um, I don't want to go ahead and promote that podcast because they don't need the promotion because they're doing exponentially better than we are. Um, but they basically said, if your, if your significant other is starting to accuse you of cheating nonstop, the chances are they're the ones cheating on you. Yeah. And again, we're talking about nonstop, not like your partner saw something, you know, and was like, hmm, that's strange, you know, like, and mentions it once, you have a conversation about it and it goes away, right? We're talking about like that nonstop, like, oh, where are you? Who are you with? What are you doing, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you must be talking to someone. And this may be like using this defense mechanism is not necessarily like most common among people with substance use disorders, but like this may be something that's like, this may be a symptom of a, of maybe like a personality disorder. Like Mm -hmm. for someone who, who needs to have that power in a relationship, like they want to be the ones to be, to, to have as many possible mates as possible but they can't bear to see their partner be the one that's deceitful, you know? Yeah. Well, and, and again, projection, I think happens commonly, even people that have no diagnosable mental health project, like issues, Mm -hmm. right? Like we have all projected something onto somebody else at some point in our lives. Right. Mm -hmm. Just some of us use some of these defense mechanisms more frequently because typically they have helped us in some way. Right. So when we think about defense mechanisms, we also want to think about, we typically use them because they have helped us. It doesn't necessarily mean they're helpful to us, mm-hmm. right? They might not have serve a benefit or a purpose, 
but in the past they might have, right? They may no longer be helpful. I'm not drunk. You're drunk. Yeah. Something like that, you know? Yeah. Um, that, that's uh, the projection with denial. <laughs> right. Right. Projection and denial in the same, in the same sense. Um, okay. So the next one is displacement. Okay. Uh, this basically means you direct when you direct strong emotions towards a person or an object that doesn't feel that doesn't feel threatening. This mm -hmm. this basically will allow you to get it out like it satisfies your impulse to react, but you don't risk significant consequences sometimes. Yeah. So like typically like you had a really bad day at work, right? Like something terrible, like not even terrible, but like maybe you got in trouble, right? And like you mm -hmm. come home and you yell at your kids. Mm -hmm. Right? Like yeah. And maybe maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong. This is kind of like a little sidebar. I know we 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 tend to do those um, quite often here on the Sober Highway podcast, but um, <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's my fault. I don't know. Um, but one of the things I hear, like when when people have difficulty managing anger, right? They, you know, sometimes when people are angry, they like to throw things, they like to hit things, punch holes in walls, and stuff like that. And so I read somewhere that, you know, getting someone say like a punching bag so that they can, that they can hit a punching bag when they feel angry so that they don't hit their wives or their husbands or their kids or whatever. I kind of feel like, yeah, I get what you're trying to do, but I feel like I feel like using the punching bag to displace all of that anger is just making you better at doing that. It's not, it's not really, it, I get the point. It's supposed to be cathartic and you're supposed to get all that anger out and put it into that punching bag. But like, if that's your coping mechanism for dealing with anger, what happens when that punching bag is not there? Yeah. I mean, I would say it's something definitely to be very cautious about. Mm -hmm. Um, I do understand in terms of like, this is like kind of a belief within like holistic work, right. Of energy mm -hmm. needs to be transferred. Mm -hmm. Right. And so if you have all of this anger and built up energy, energy cannot be created or destroyed. Right. So it needs to be put somewhere else, but that may mean working out. That right. may mean, you know, going for a run or a jog or, um, that could mean, uh, dancing. It could mean, right. Like, and so to physically displace that energy somewhere else could be very helpful, but it has to be done kind of in a safe setting. That's not mm -hmm. going to necessarily continue like the potential threat of like violence or, um, aggression. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and so again, I think that first, and look, for some people, Using a punching bag might be very helpful, but I think it should be done with caution. I would I would say that it, instead of maybe using a punching bag, using a using like a stress ball, like taking a balloon, filling it with like rice or flour or whatever it is, and you know squeezing it and letting it go, because if anything, it 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 helps you practice releasing that tension. Yeah, and again, you know? that's a displacement of energy too. Right. right? 
Right. That's that's what I'm saying. Like that's a good way to help displace that energy without, you know, say doing causing more problems than solving than you're solving. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, um this is a really good one coming up here. Uh regression. Yes. Basically, um, when we feel basically what regression means is when we're feeling stressed, we resort to earlier stages of development where we use like more immature coping mechanisms to help us manage that stress. So I am a, I am a firm believer and hopefully you would agree Anika that when in recovery, a person stops developing mentally or their development is stunted at the age when they started using. I would typically say that's true. I think occasionally there are people that that does not always completely apply to, but yes, in general, the emotional maturity is not there because the substances are kind of preventing that growth from happening, right? That, Mm -hmm. that self-actualization and and self-image to really flourish, right? And and Mm -hmm. be comfortable in oneself because the drugs and alcohol are keeping you in kind of a vicious cycle of, I can never really move forward with my self-concept and who I am. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's why it kind of seems that, you know, if you start using when you're 14 or you start drinking or using marijuana, right. When you're like 14 and then like you really, your active addiction really took off. Maybe when you're 20, you're still a teenager in a lot of emotional aspects. Right. I mean, I, I remember a time where I was working with a patient and he was, I don't want to say he was in the middle of a binge, but he was have it was a month or two where he was having a tough time maintaining abstinence after a prolonged period of abstinence and he started to regress and so i asked him i was like let me ask you something when when was it that you said you started using dope again he goes uh maybe around like 17 18 years old i said don't you think do you think it's possible that the way that you're acting right now is reminiscent of a 17 or 18 year old. He goes, yeah, I would think so. And I said, and how old are you? He's like, I'm 50. I said, okay, so you're a 50 year old acting like a teenager. What can we do? What do we do here? Mm -hmm. You know, so maybe, you know, with someone who's a little bit more, who's a little bit older and is able to, and is more mindful of their, uh, of their behavior, you can confront them like that. But this, this can be a tough one to get, to get out of, if you would, like, how, how would you approach that with a patient? Um, I mean, I think with adult patients, yeah. So you can kind of use more of that, like, kind of questioning and pointing out discrepancy or like, you know, that, that type of thing. Right. If they're say it's non-substance use related mm-hmm. and it's, you know, regression um, in the sense of they start sucking their thumb again or um, sleeping with stuffed animals. Um, you know, to me, that's indicating a feeling of like, they have to go back to their childhood ways of self-soothing. So they're feeling unsafe in some way. Mm-hmm. 
And so I try to typically think about how can I make somebody like think about what their safety concerns are, because it may not be like the primary focus that they're thinking about at that time. But typically we that's something that happens. Right. And we see happen that happens with kids, too. Um, mm -hmm. So regression in kids can be like all of a sudden your kid starts wetting the bed again. Right. And like you ruled out medical causes. Right. And, and all that mm -hmm. good stuff, like because there's a whole litany of things we do before kind of saying it's psychological, right? And um, thinking about that too, that like something is coming up for somebody, right? Mm -hmm. um, and how do we support them, not shame them about their behavior too, right? So like they're either they're feeling lack of control, they're feeling unsafe, they're regressing to prior time and, mm -hmm. and finding a way to self-soothe, to feel better, um, maybe they're feeling overwhelmed. Right. And so that's mm -hmm. typically when I think of clients that are, are showing like symptoms of regressions, typically related to things like that. Gotcha. That makes total sense. Um, I personally have had like, mo I've said it before. Most of my experience is working with patients that are engaging in substance use. So the, the whole thought process that, that you just explained, I know I haven't really thought about it that way. So thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, again, like I've had experiences in lots of different realms and had lots of different hats in, in the past decade, you know, mm -hmm. of, of really thinking about like, what is this? So what does this mean? Well, this looks different for different clients. Right. Um, and because I've done a lot of trauma work, I do know a lot of these defense mechanisms come from a feeling of feeling unsafe. Now, is that always some huge traumatic event? No. Mm -hmm. Right. Sometimes it's the fact that um, somebody at work said something like, ew, did you see what she's wearing today? And that could trigger somebody to regress in some way, to project, to use denial, right? I mean, use any of these defense mechanisms because maybe that's a story you've heard in your life over and over again. Mm-hmm. Right. And so we, we're, a lot of times we're thinking about trauma, we're thinking about like abuse, neglect, things like that. Right. But like it could be something more subtle. And it reminds me of bullying when I was a kid. Right. right? Or it reminds me of not feeling good enough. I don't fit in anywhere. And that's something we hear people that are in um, addiction and recovery say all the time. Mm -hmm. I never felt good enough. I don't fit in. Right. Um, and, and those are still traumas of sorts as well. Right. Some, some people have experienced a lot of trauma in, in high school or even middle school or elementary school because they were bullied. So, you know, those are some of the, the things, but uh, yeah, regression again, I think it can present in lots of different ways. Um, so. Moving on. <clears throat> this one is something that our patients do a lot, uh, which is, oh, hold on. Something's happening with my computer right now. This is weird. You see my face change from like white to yellow? Yeah. You seeing it right now? Yeah, I think the blue light filter is kicking on. Anyway, so this is something that our patients do quite often, and that is rationalization. Um, I like to call it basically just making excuses. Um, but basically what rationalization is, is when someone attempts to explain their undesirable behaviors, whether it be getting high, drinking, uh, 
you know, doing something that they shouldn't by creating their own set of facts, right? It, it basically allows the person who's rationalizing to feel, to feel comfortable about the decision that they're making. And justify. Even though, or right, to justify it within themselves, even though on a, on another level, it's, it's wrong or it's not healthy. Yeah. It's like one of my favorites says, well, if you had my life, you'd use or drink. Or right. if you've been through what I have, right? Mm-hmm. You do the same thing. Um, you know, it's that that's one that like, I think in especially a substance abuse, you hear all the time. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, it's not that bad. I didn't use that much. Right. I don't drink alone. Mm-hmm. Right. Those are all rationalizations we hear constantly um, in, in terms of like, well, you know, I'm not that bad. I'm, I'm okay. Why did you go? Why did you go to the mall? Why did you go to Macy's and spend $500 on clothes? Everything was on sale. Yeah. Yeah. It was 75% off, you know, so I couldn't pass up a deal like that. Like you justified you spending $500 on a jacket because it was on sale for 75% off. <laughs> Granted, if you're buying a jacket that's on sale for 75% off and it still costs $500. You should probably you... be thinking about that. <laughs> exactly. Because but... quite honestly, quite honestly, if you're rationalizing something like that, you probably would have bought that jacket at full price anyway. The interesting thing I think about rationalization is I think a lot of people are like on that, when you use rationalization, you're like almost on that cusp of like admitting like that you have a problem or knowing or consciously knowing something's not right. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's been your experience, but I feel like people who rationalize a lot, it's like they're almost there. They're almost ready to make a change. They're almost ready to say like, oh shit, yeah, maybe this is a problem, right? Um, But instead Mm -hmm. it's like, nope, let me justify that one more time. Let me rationalize. You ever notice how sometimes patients rationalize sarcastically? Mm -hmm. I'm making um, a joke out of it. Right, like they're making a joke out of it and it's like, it's almost like when when they try to do that with you, it's like, you know, you know that they know that what they did is wrong but they're just trying to make light of it by saying, oh, it was on sale. So, you know, or, you know, I felt victim to peer pressure again, or, you know, like everybody was drinking. So mm-hmm. it, it, it's like, we both, you and I both know that what you did wasn't right, but you're, you're trying to be sarcastic about it to justify your actions. Yeah. And, and again, rationalization is one of those that's super common for a lot of people again, right? Mm-hmm. So like, it's one of the ones that comes up for almost like probably 100% of the population at some time, right? Like we've Everybody all rationalized this, something, yeah. <laughs> something that we, we really shouldn't have, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so again, I, I don't want that people to like pathologize all of these things and be like, oh, I use this. There must be something wrong. No, we all use them to a certain extent, right? We're not necessarily saying that these coping mechanisms are healthy or unhealthy. Um, Defense mechanisms, right? Like they're, 
they're just right. something that happens, right? Again, mm-hmm. like at this subconscious level, we can mm-hmm. learn to become more aware of them and try mm-hmm. to find healthier ways to, to express and deal with some of it. But um, again, defense mechanisms initially are these subconscious things that are happening and we all have experienced some of them. Some of mm-hmm. us though, use them too frequently or use them all the time. Right. right? And that's where it becomes problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, the next one um, sometimes is considered a positive strategy and maybe it, I think it also ties into what we were talking about earlier with displacement. This one is called sublimation. Um, in with sublimation, um, people who use this this defense mechanism choose to redirect strong emotions or feelings into an object or an activity that is appropriate and safe. So, for example, instead of, you know, like when you have a rough day at work, instead of going home and yelling at your wife or hitting your children – you channel that energy into kickboxing or exercising or, you know, redirect those feelings into music or art or sports. Um, And I think where that, I think in essence, if you're, if you're channeling that energy in a positive way, you could call it sublimation. And if you're using it in a negative way and it's creating more problems than it solves, then you could say you're displacing. Yeah. Would that make sense? Yeah. Displacing is more of the, the nothing beneficial is coming from it. Sublimation is there's something positive essentially that's coming from it. Basically you want to think of sublimation as like utilizing healthy coping skills. Really? Right. Because that's in, in essence, that's what it is really. Right. Mm-hmm. Like um, there, there can be sublimation in terms of like hypnosis and like so there, there's definitely like other areas to that but we won't go there because we'll just think about just very basic defense Mm -hmm. mechanisms for now so if you want to think about it just in terms of like again there's something positive that's coming from it yeah i feel like like going back to the whole like punching bag thing i feel like if someone can if someone can channel their anger if they want to use the punching bag as their coping mechanism say to manage their anger and they know that after they punch after they're done with the punching bag, that's it. Like the anger is not like increasing. It's not, right. you're thinking about somebody's face while you're doing it. It's not right. making your blood boil, those type of things. Then it could be healthy. If you're able to separate, you know, the displacing into that, into that punching bag and going home and being with your family like if you're punching that bag and then you're still going home and hitting your wife and your kids, maybe that kind of ties into what I was saying before, where hitting that punching bag is just making you better at being more aggressive. Mm-hmm. But like if you're if you're able to hit that punching bag and by the by the time you're done, you're so exhausted that like you can't you don't even think about doing any of that stuff anymore. That's a healthy coping mechanism. That's a healthy coping me- coping mechanism. Excuse me. Um okay. <clears throat> so the the next one is reaction formation. Um, with this defense mechanism, um, people are able to recognize how they feel. They're able to recognize the emotion that they're experiencing, but they choose to behave in the opposite manner of their instincts. So, for example, um, 
when they feel so for a person who reacts this way, they may feel to they shouldn't express negative emotions such as anger or frustration. So they choose to react in an overly positive way. Yeah. So they about like toxic positivity, which is real. Isn't could you say that reaction formation is almost like gaslighting? It it can be not necessarily though. May, could could you explain why like why you just said that? Because I'm trying to understand. Oh, because I think gaslighting. Well, first of all, it's not a specifically a clinical term, right? But but gaslighting can be because it's 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 not something that you're necessarily doing to yourself. A lot of times we're thinking about gaslighting in terms of manipulation and power and control and things like that. That's the only reason why I kind of separate it from reaction mm-hmm. formation in my mm-hmm. mind, at least, right? Because it's not something that's subconsciously gaslighting typically is to a certain extent consciously being done in my right. opinion right um the person might subconsciously being might be more manipulative right in, mm-hmm. in a gaslighting situation than they're aware of but i think there is a piece that is aware of it because again it typically happens with a lot of like narcissistic traits um and things like that but so maybe reaction formation the difference between the two is if you're doing it to say manipulate someone then it would be gaslighting and if you're not you're doing it and you're doing it subconsciously because that's how you are trying to cope with the situation then it's reaction formation yeah reaction formation i would say is mostly like more towards like about yourself right Mm -hmm. Um, whereas gaslighting is like a two-party thing and like or three Mm -hmm. part like it's, it's multiple people um, it's self gaslighting. Uh, yeah, I, I don't that, know why I'm using that term. I, I really shouldn't be using it, but, but, but yeah, reaction formation, again, it could be go either way. It could be negative or positive. Right. Mm-hmm. So like, like you said, somebody that has a really hard time with negative emotions might be like, Oh, well, like I'm just going to put on a happy face and smile and pretend everything's okay. And just tell everyone I'm great. Right. So when people Mm -hmm. say to me, like, they're fine. Yes. You're effed up, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. Tell me something new. (laughs) Right. Right. So when, when you say fine, which is like what most of us say, normally there's something underneath it. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, that kind of reminds me of the reaction formation. We have these formalities sometimes because of cultural influences, family influences that say, or even personal like histories, right. That say like, well, maybe I shouldn't express being angry or sad, right? It, it's it remind that reminds me of like this this one stand up comedian that I that I watched a while back where it's like when someone at like when you walk up to someone or like when you have a casual conversation with someone and they say hey how's it going or how are you doing the answer your your answer should either be fine good or okay mm-hmm. you know so like if you're in a really bad spot. What he's saying is you should just say, fine, great, good. You Mm -hmm. shouldn't really go into what actually is bothering you because that really, like, that really wasn't the point of that interaction in the first place. Yeah. Um, Reaction formation is is very interesting. There's lots of other examples too, and it can get mm -hmm. more complex than that. But again, we'll keep it simple for now Mm -hmm. um, because I know we want to get to two more, I think. Right. Yeah, two more. Um, so number nine is compartmentalization. 
And this could be healthy or unhealthy too. <laughs> say that, say that five times fast. Um, but basically when you compartmentalize, you're, you're essentially separating your life into independent sections. Um, so for example, not discussing personal life at work, not discussing work at home and vice versa. Um, this is something, I mean, maybe you would agree, Anika, is something that therapists have to practice all should really try to practice all the time. Yeah. And there's a lot of professions that that's true of, right? So like thinking about, I place things in different boxes. And so I actually use, mm -hmm. I teach some of my clients to compartmentalize, right? Mm -hmm. So clients that don't have that skill that it's like really hard for them and they feel so overwhelmed and everything's seeping into each other, like all the time, learning mm -hmm. compartmentalization can be really helpful. So thinking about, I'm putting all of this stuff about this one topic, right? So like myself, right? My clients today, I'm putting all of this stuff that I talked about with them. I'm putting it in a box and putting this lid on the box. It's mm -hmm. nice and sealed. And I want to take that box and I'm going to put it up on a shelf in a closet, right? And so mm -hmm. I visualize this happening. And then that, that closet, I'm not going to open that door until I see them again. And then I'll take that box out and, and I'll deal with it, right? Which is mm -hmm. not may or may not be true because maybe I need to actually like think about their case some more later in the week or do some research or, you know, whatever. But, but thinking about, I put it away and then I can come back to it later. Right. Just think about hitting like file save, mm -hmm. right? Like you, you, you type whatever you need to into a document and then you hit file save and then you exit out and it's gone. It's gone from your screen or your, your computer screen or your conscious. And then when you're ready to, deal with whatever that thing is again you can literally go into your computer and retrieve it so that it's in your conscious mind again or on your screen and then you could do whatever with whatever you need to do with it yeah and so that could be really helpful especially mm -hmm. again if we think about trauma work too and say you're you're working with a therapist that's specifically processing trauma with you to compartmentalize mm -hmm. that like when i go back to the office that's when i i, I continue to explore because it's my safe place right mm -hmm. um and, and so again, it can be really beneficial to learn how to do that, but it can also have the reverse if you do it too often or too much. Right. And I think maybe, maybe this is an example of someone who is having, let me explain. So at my job, I work with, with peer counselors, right? And basically the peer counselor, the whole basis of being a peer counselor in addiction recovery is using your previous experiences to help you relate to the patient that you're trying to treat. Mm -hmm. And so there are a lot of times in over the course of a peer counselor's career where they're just often disclosing a lot about their personal life in their professional life. Um, and us as social workers, ethically, we're not necessarily obligated to disclose things like that. So we practice in essence <clears throat> we do so when it's helpful to the client right but our exactly. ethics are are different in terms of the peer counselor part of their job is to disclose and share whereas with ours it's done cautiously if it's helpful to a client and we feel comfortable doing so right right but with and i think this is where you're going correct me if i'm wrong Go ahead. but but with the the peer counselors it's kind of like almost like they can't compartmentalize 
because they're sharing so much. And so they're reliving and re-experiencing certain things over and over again Mm -hmm. because they have difficulty sometimes like knowing how to compartmentalize or how to separate certain things. Mm -hmm. And I feel, I feel like a lot of times, you know, when I'm working with a peer counselor and we're talking about say like a particular patient and how we should handle it or how we should treat that patient, I feel like the peer, like peer counselors sometimes have a tendency to interject their own, their own lives into it. And like, then I'm, I'm thinking to myself like, okay, well, are we having a treatment planning discussion or am I your therapist right now? Well, and, and again, I think some of these programs, right. And, and that cert, do the certificates for peer recovery advocates and things like that. Um, probably should beef up their curriculum around how to compartmentalize and how to take care of yourself too, to like not overly like involve your experience with the clients, right? So being able to share Mm -hmm. while also knowing your experience is, it may be similar, but it's also different. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, you're sharing your experience and things like that and, and what you've gone through, but that may not always be the best modality or treatment for the client. The treatment mm-hmm. team will make that decision. Right. Um, this brings us to our last one. Um, this is this is something that um, that I've seen my patients do a lot, um, and something that I I think I've done a time or two. I was just um, going to say I'm totally guilty of this one. Um, this is something that we call intellectualization. Um, and basically when someone is engaging in this defense mechanism, they're, they're essentially trying to remove all emotion from their response. And instead they're just focusing on facts. They're, they're, they're essentially, um, they're trying to think completely with their logical mind. Like from a DBT standpoint, there's two, there's three different minds. There's the logical mind, there's the emotional mind and the wise mind. So think of when someone is intellectualizing, they're, they're thinking completely with their logical mind. Yeah. And, and so really thinking about like how, how trying to, use the the logic or facts or knowledge right mm-hmm. in in response to something that potentially is emotional to avoid the emotional component mm-hmm. right that's kind of what intellect intellect intellectualization is if i could say it right now mm-hmm. um say that one five times fast yeah <laughs> you know but but again i think it's it's kind of the i don't know how to deal with the emotional piece Mm -hmm. So it's easier for me to just kind of like spew off all these facts or like go into making spreadsheets or um, doing something that seemingly makes sense or logic to me. Right. Like there, there are certain types of life stressors that aren't necessarily like, I'm trying to think uh, like, for example, if you're in a really tough situation, say like your car breaks down. Right. And this is a car that say is a you got it from your your father who passed away. And like it was a project car that you guys worked on together. Right. And the mechanic says to you, listen, it's going to like there's a lot of 
work that needs to be done here. It's going to cost like $10,000 to fix, right? If you, you might, you know, like you have to think you have to use both your, your rational, your, your logical mind and your emotional mind, because yeah, like part of you doesn't want to, doesn't want to let this car go because it means so much to you. But then again, is it really like, or do you really want to spend $10,000 to, to fix this car? Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. And like one of the other examples I kind of think about to like make it clear is like somebody in your family, like passes away, dies. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and the emotional reaction shut down. Mm -hmm. So let me call the funeral home. Let me figure out what casket. Let me, um, kind of check off all the tasks and do all the boxes mm -hmm. without allowing myself to experience grief. Mm -hmm. Right. So I'm, I'm going to kind of take charge and do everything and that's it. And that may also uh, doing that exact thing may actually create some resentments co coming from your family members, like siblings or stuff like that. Like why does, why does so-and-so get to choose the casket? Why does this person get to choose the funeral home? Why does this person get to do this, that, and the third? And we're just stuck here feeling miserable about, about our father who just passed away. You yeah. know what I mean? Well, and the one other thing that I would think about too, or uh, any clinicians that are listening, it's like, be cautious of you doing this with your clients, mm -hmm. right? So like, Sometimes if something that somebody's saying is triggering you or it's bringing up emotion, right? Of course, we have different ways that that we know kind of how to process some of that, not let our own biases and feelings get in the way of the session, but not taking it to the extreme of using intellectualization in terms of like, okay, well, this is like your diagnosis or this is what's going on, like without having any empathy mm -hmm. or compassion, right? So I, I want to just kind of put that out there too. Like, don't use like cold clinical terms, like without that, like be very cautious and mindful, um, just in terms of being a practitioner, like, it's almost like you're literally, it's like, if you were to have the DSM open in front of you while a patient is talking, and you're literally just like, okay, okay, all right, yep, okay, you have major depression. Yeah, without being like, that must be so difficult, or like, right. that sounds really hard. Like, how have you been in dealing with this so far, right? Like, those are ways that we can express some emotional connection and concern for people, right? We mm -hmm. don't want to kind of fall into that trap. And again, when people are burnt out in the field or, or things like that, like that can happen. So just be mindful of that. And, and, I, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but like, when when patients come in and they're sharing stuff like that they're not necessarily maybe this is more so with mental health disorders but a lot of times patients just want to know how to fix it they mm -hmm. don't necessarily want to know like what diagnosis do i have like am yeah, i depressed I am i anxious am i am i psychotic like they just want to know like i'm really sad about this or i'm having trouble coping with this how do i make it easier to cope with I think that that's true for like a lot of my, I don't even want to say older because they're not older, but like a lot of my clients over the age of like 25, mm -hmm. um, clients that are younger, um, typically 
and again, I think this has to do with social media. That might be my own like personal experience or bias. So I will say that, but like a lot of the younger people, they want to know their diagnosis or they come in telling me their diagnosis before they've ever been diagnosed. Yeah. Maybe and they've is, read the DSM before coming in. No, they or they've, TikTok. they what? They see it on TikTok. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> right. This I mean, favorite. I have so many people that do that and I'm like, let's think about this a little where did you see this yeah i mean like everybody like we went over like different diag like different types of diagnoses when we did our episode about co-occurring disorders but like just because so like one person's depression diagnosis is not necessarily the same as someone else's because, yeah it might look completely different right so just because you heard someone talk about being depressed and you feel like you can identify with them. It doesn't necessarily mean you hit the same criteria as they do. Yeah. So my, like my, the ideal situation would be if, if you're struggling with depression or if you're, if you're having trouble, if you're having difficulty coping with something, go to someone who you feel is ex is an expert in that field and say this is what i'm dealing with um this is what i'm dealing with and how do i fix it like for example if you're having a problem with your car right this is like this is something my dad told me he goes whenever you're whenever you take your car into the shop don't tell them what you think it is because that's where they're going to look so like if you tell if you go into a car deal a car like a mechanic and you say, "Oh, you know, my car is making this noise. I think it's my transmission." That's where they're going to start. Right? But if you just go in there and you say, "Something's wrong with my car. It's making a noise. I don't know what's going on." The 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 mechanic is going to have to do a comprehensive diag, you know, comp comprehensive look over of the car and you know, subsequently rule things out. Now, if you go into a, a therapist or a psychiatrist and say, Hey, um, this is what's going on in my life. I think I'm depressed. You're the person that you're working with may be inclined to start there instead of doing a comprehensive assessment and then going from there. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, and again, I think that that's something clinicians should kind of be aware of too, right? Just because your client is coming in saying this, take it with mm -hmm. a grain of salt, may or may not be true. Go through everything, ask about all different symptoms for all of the diagnoses, you know, and, and really do a full assessment. You know, sometimes that does take a long time, but really try to do that because again, some of the diagnoses are more complex than we'd like them to be, right? And so mm -hmm. like, trying to think about that. Um, but yes, now, now we went off on our, our tangent about, uh, <laughs> diagnosing, but, but again, I think it's just important for people to recognize too, that like, you're not your diagnosis, whatever it is, right. It's just a mm -hmm. criteria of, of symptoms. Um, it, it's not who you are. Mm -hmm. Right. So sometimes knowing your diagnosis, yes, could be beneficial, but like, also, does it really matter? I mean, there's so much more as long as like you're, you feel like you're doing work, you're getting better, you have good coping skills, you're in therapy for like those type of things and you're feeling better, then that's a mm -hmm. good thing. It doesn't really matter what your diagnosis is. And 
one thing that I I would like to stress is, especially when it comes to, you know, substance use disorders and people that are in recovery, you are not, you know, you are not your addiction, right? It doesn't control who you are. And no matter how many, how much clean time or sober time that you have, just because you have a, a, you know, a lapse in judgment and say you pick up again or you drink again, it doesn't mean necessarily that you have to start over from scratch. I mean, yeah, the, 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 the clock, date, yeah, the date changes, that. which is why I encourage patients not to necessarily track their sober time, but like you, you don't have to start over in the sense that you have to start a treatment program all over again. Like you, you don't were, lose what you gained. Right. Like you still have all those coping skills that you learned up until that point, And you just, in that moment, you chose not to use them or they just weren't effective enough. So you can still go back to using those skills, but maybe try to fine tune them a little bit more or look for something else that you, that you didn't think of before. Yeah. Um, so the that, diagnosis could be important for a, if you're working with a doctor, a psychiatrist in particular, right? Diagnosis mm-hmm. could be important just in terms of what medications they prescribe, just FYI. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and a lot of times, you know, when, 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 when we're billing for a certain service, a lot of times the insurance company won't pay out unless there's a diagnosis. So we're not, and when I say that, I mean, we're not going to diagnose you with something that you don't have just so that we can get paid, but it, it it's almost like we can't, we can't just say, Hey, we spoke to this person for 45 minutes, pay us. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and I see this all the time. I always actually, when I do intakes in my private practice, that's like one of the first things I say in an intake session is I'm going to have to diagnose you with something. These are the things that normally come up the most. Let's talk about what you've been going through. And then by the end of the session, I typically will tell them, you know, depending on how long, sometimes it's one session, two, three, depending um, mm-hmm. after we do our full intake, like this is, I hear him. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, the, this is what I'm going to put as your, your diagnosis for the insurance company, because this is what best meets for right now with what you've told me. This is, you know, what kind of best meets the criteria so I can bill your insurance appropriately. Um, and clients pretty much are like, oh, thanks for letting me know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I would just put it down as a rule out, you know, like yeah. rule out depression, rule out anxiety. So that yeah. way they can say, listen, I'm going to bill as, you know, generalized anxiety or major depression. But, you know, for for all, the purposes of you and I working together, we're going to try and rule this out. Um, so that's, those were the 10 defense mechanisms that we, that we wanted to share with you guys. Um, if you personally are, you know, are willing to share an instance where you've, you've used one of these defense mechanisms. Yeah. You've become consciously aware of using them, right. Or you notice like, oh, this is like something that comes up for me all the time. Yeah. Let us know. Yeah. Because we, we really would like to hear from our listeners, um, we wanted to we want to thank everybody who's listened to our podcast so far. I think we're up to like we're almost up to 300 listener uh 300 total downloads. We have gone global. We've reached I think we've reached as far as India. 
Um, so we're grateful to everyone that's listened and we really do want to hear from you guys. So whatever you feel like you have to add, please, please, please reach out to us. Um, make sure to check out our sponsors, um, brainwash coffee company. Um, if you go to their website, brainwashcoffeeco.com and you use the code sober highway checkout, uh, you'll get 20% off your coffee order. Also, if you buy three or more bags, you'll get free shipping, which sounds amazing to me. Um, if you go to um, our other sponsor, Food Kit Clothing, we'll link there. We'll put the link in the episode uh, description. Click that link. Go to their website. Use the code Sober Highway, and you will get uh, you'll get a discount on your order there. Um, make sure to follow us on all of our social medias. Right, I think we're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned TikTok last because we have I have started a TikTok campaign in which I am trying to get AJ McLean of the Backstreet Boys to come on our podcast for an interview. I have made a video every day for almost the past month. We're up to day 28 today. Um go on Woo-hoo, TikTok. You're graduating rehab. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Um, go on TikTok, like the videos, all of them, comment on them, tag AJ, go on his Instagram, go on his Twitter, blow his, blow his social medias up, tell him that you want him to come on the show. That would, that would really, really, um, that would really help us out. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to add, Anika? Um, just if, if you're somebody that, you know, feels like you have something to contribute, you'd like to be on our podcast, you know, just DM us, let us know like mm-hmm. why you feel like you'd be good. Like what, what is your expertise, your knowledge, um, you know, and, and let us know and we'd be more than happy to have you on too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so that's it. And we will catch you guys next week. Bye. Bye.